Thank you for listening to CG Life with Steve Quartz. It's my hope that today's message will help you find and live the extraordinary life Jesus gives. After listening to this podcast, I'd like to invite you to connect with me on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram for more updates and resources. Well, wherever you are, however you've joined us, we are glad you're here as we press on in our series entitled The Battle. Now, in this series thus far, we've said some some critical things and set this up to uh, discuss further all that's involved in spiritual warfare. We've said this, that life is a matter of conflict. Life is full of conflict, but For followers of Jesus, for followers of Jesus, there is an added layer. There is a greater depth of conflict that they experience. And that conflict flows from three sources. The Bible says that uh, believers experience spiritual conflict from the world around them, the uh, devil beyond them, and finally, the scripture says, the flesh inside them. The world around us presents us with images and ideas, images and ideas that are meant to attract us and by attracting us, steal our affection. The world is constantly offering itself to us as a substitute for God, saying, I can meet your needs. I can fulfill everything and anything that you want to make your life worth living. Today, we're looking together at the uh, devil who is beyond us. And so I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 8. We'll be looking together at uh, verses 31 and following. We've said too that for uh, followers of Jesus, before they came to Christ, like every other human being, the, uh, the world, the devil, and the flesh were masters that they served. But after finding life in Christ, those old masters have become for them determined enemies, determined opponents. And it becomes critical then for believers to know how to engage these opponents. The good news is that believers are not helpless. They have help. They have hope. And there are strategies that we find in the scripture, strategies that help us to overcome. If we're followers of Jesus, that help us to overcome these three great enemies. Now, in John chapter 8, this is what we find. We find Jesus ending uh, a uh, series of discussions with Jews and Jewish leaders. It is um, the uh, Feast of the Tabernacles, John reports to us, that uh, finds Jesus and draws Jesus to the temple. The uh, Feast of the Tabernacles, of course, was that great feast where God's people gathered uh, once a year in Jerusalem to celebrate the faithfulness of God and setting them free generations before from slavery to Egypt. And also was a time they celebrated the faithfulness of God in delivering yet another harvest. And what we find, and John records in 7 and 8, is this. We find that uh, Jesus, on the very last day, the high day of the festival, steps forward in the temple and he offers to everyone who would hear him, to everyone who was open to hearing what he, was, what he had to say, he offers himself to them for life. And he says things like this. 
He says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. He says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So compelling is Jesus' teaching, so uh, authoritative in the way that he preaches, and so powerful was the conduct of what, uh, the content of what he was saying that John records, you see it in verse 30 of chapter 8, that many believed or put their faith in him. What's curious to me is what Jesus does next. He's made this great invitation. He has taught with authority. He has given, laid out a compelling reason for people to put their faith in him. Some say they have, but notice what he does next. Jesus doesn't tell these uh, new and professing believers how they should behave because they have faith in him, but rather he tests these newest believers in both what or, and whether they truly believe. And he wants to know what is in your heart? Is this faith that you're professing, that you're announcing, is it real? Or is it just an impulse coming from a high moment of a religious experience? What we see Jesus doing is testing the willingness of these professing believers to receive and follow all that he has to say. And in doing so, he shows you and I what genuine faith looks like and what spurious or fickle faith looks like. He helps us to distinguish between imitation faith, true faith, casual disciples, real disciples. So notice what he says to those who believed in him in verses 31 and 32. He says, basically, okay, you say you believe in me? Listen, if you abide, verse 31, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And verse 32, if you abide in my word, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. In other words, those who genuinely believe in me, they will persevere in all of my teachings. They won't believe me just once, but, but rather will remain in my word, obeying it, seeking to understand more of it, applying it in life to all of life. What Jesus is saying, and, and the point that he's making ultimately is this, knowing me, genuinely knowing me, is joined to trusting my word and to doing my word. Knowing and doing together are proof of true believing. Those who are genuine disciples of Jesus, they hold tight to who Jesus is. They hold tight to what Jesus teaches. And they keep obeying him even when it costs them everything to do so. Now, now, they might slip, they might slip at times in doing his word, but they never finally let go of it, for they know, they're convinced that his words are the words of life, and they've discovered as well that his words bring a kind of freedom, a real freedom into life. And so Jesus says that those who hold on to his words discover that his words set them free. They need the freedom that he gives because Jesus' truth shows that while they haven't always realized it, they've always been slaves to sin. Look at verse 34. 
So Jesus succeeds in the end in testing the faith of these new believers, and sure enough, their faith proves fickle. Verses 33 and following show that those who said they believed in him really couldn't uh, follow him because they wouldn't follow all of his teaching. And they, they take issue with basically two ideas. That first, they need Jesus to save them, and secondly, that they are slaves to sin without him. What Jesus has uncovered, you see, is a group of believers for whom he is a nice addition to life, to lives that are already pretty good and need no help. Jesus is, for them, a kind of bolt-on business acquisition, a plug-and-play for your operating system. Or road armor, you bolt on to your Ford F-250 Super Duty. Now, I refuse to get drawn into the pickup wars. But I'm just saying, yeah. But for these people, Jesus isn't the ultimate solution for a life gone wrong because their lives haven't gone wrong. He's not the bringer of total transformation because they don't really need total transformation. These believers are glad to have Jesus as a hero to be emulated, but they don't want Jesus as a savior to be dedicated to. And so the result is a fierce debate. Jesus has struck a spiritual nerve. And so by the end of this debate, the very same people who say they believe in him in verse 30, look at verse 59, are the people who are picking up stones ready to kill him because of what he said. Why? Well, to our surprise, Jesus says all of this comes down to a matter of paternity. That really this test of faith that he's been, been applying is a paternity test. And while these people claim that the faithful Abraham is their father, and then they claim, no, that God is actually their father, these fickle believers show that neither of these claims is, is actually true. In fact, Jesus says, and this is our key passage for the morning in uh, verses 44 to 47, he says this, look at it with me. You, quite frankly, are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth. Why? Because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and he is the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you don't believe me. Now, which of you convicts me of sin? Why is it that you don't believe me? Is it because you think I'm a sinner? If so, what sin is it that you, is it that you think I've committed? Why do you not believe me? If I tell you the truth, verse 46, why do you not believe me. I'll tell you why, Jesus says. It is because of this. Whoever, verse 47, is of God, has God as their true father, 
hears the words of God. The reason why you don't hear them is that you are not of God. In other words, because God is not truly your father, no matter what you may say or what you may think. All the evidence points in the other direction. The evidence, Jesus says, is against you. C.S. Lewis in his God in the Dock says this, and I quote, now listen carefully, okay? You gotta listen carefully to this, okay? You gotta listen carefully to this, okay? Okay? You listening carefully? Okay. C.S. Lewis says, the more a man is in the devil's power, the less he is aware of it. Just like a man is still fairly sober as long as he knows he's drunk. Are you thinking on that one? Just like a man is still fairly sober as long as he knows he's drunk. I I understand. I haven't experienced this personally. But I understand that you can get so drunk you don't know you're drunk. Does anybody want to? No, no, I didn't think so. I I didn't think so. It's probably not a good time for personal testimonies and that kind of thing. The more a man is in the devil's power, the less he's aware of it. So we shouldn't be surprised that these these, uh, people who are calling themselves believers are so very offended You see, Jesus intimates a a couple of things here that are very, very offensive. Number one, he's intimating that humanity can have one of two fathers, God or the devil. There is no third option. We love the idea that there's a third option, especially when we don't want to follow what God has said is, is the way we should follow or the way we should live. None of us wants to say, oh, I'm a child of the devil, unless you're, you know, it's one of those really way out on the edge kind of people. And if you are, we're glad you're here. Um, just please identify yourself to, to an usher um, on your way out. But there is no third option. We wish there were. We want there to be. Jesus says there's no, there's no third option. You are either a child of God or you're a child of the devil. The second thing that Jesus says or intimates that is so offensive is this. He says that everyone apart from God has the devil as their father, and the proof is that they live their lives essentially wanting what he wants using the same methods that he uses. Now, what is most important for us today is the extraordinary summary of Jesus of who the devil is and what he's like. This is important for us because out of the world, the flesh, and the devil, the devil is by far the greatest enemy believers face, and yet he's also the hardest to detect. This is no doubt why Jesus takes the devil so very seriously and why what he shares is so needed. He helps us here to grasp more fully who this great enemy is. And he begins to show us how he can be overcome. Now, we're going to explore this in two parts. Today, we're going to begin by looking at the first step to 
resisting the devil, and that is effectively understanding him. Knowing your enemy is always half the battle. And if you will concur with me, if you'll agree, then we'll save the second part of of today's message for next Sunday. We'll break it up into two. Does anybody have any complaints with that? Um, I, I didn't think so. 40-minute sermon, an hour-and-a-half sermon, anybody? Okay, good. I, I see we've got agreement, broad agreement here, and that is a really good thing. So to understand him, we, we've got to understand four things. Here they are. Are you ready? We've got to understand where he's been and what he's after. We've got to understand who he is and what he's like. We need to understand how he works. And then finally, we need to understand how he is overcome. Today, we're going to examine his story and his ambitions. And we're going to explore his character, who he is, what he's like. And uh, to accomplish this, we're going to do something that's a little unusual for us. We're going to do a survey of the larger biblical witness. Understanding the rest of God's word on this opponent will help us better understand Jesus' urgency in our passage. So let's begin with the devil's story and his ambitions. Verse 44, Jesus says, you are of your father, the devil. So who is this devil? Jesus' original hearers arguably understood this better than you and I typically do. But elsewhere, the Bible presents the devil as the highest ranking of all God's angels who wanted to exalt himself to a position of equality with God. Depicted in the dramatic language of Revelation 12, one-third of all the angels joined him in his heavenly revolt. They arrogantly opposed God and were expelled from heaven, Ezekiel 28 and Luke 10 tell us. So the devil was an angel who rebelled against God and convinced other angels to go on and join him. And all of them were cast out of heaven and all are awaiting final judgment, 2 Peter 2 and Jude 6 tell us. So this means that the devil and the fallen angels who follow him are all deathless creatures whose minds are permanently set to oppose God, to oppose his goodness, to oppose his truth. They have limited but real power. They have freedom of movement. And we see this right from the very beginning of the creation story, where in Genesis 3, a demonic figure enters in the form of a serpent. And using deception and using distortion of the truth, he convinces Eve and Adam to disobey God and rebel against him, to effectively do what he and these other angels have already done. This means, of course, then, that sin didn't start with us. It started as a contamination, if you will, from another different kind of being. But here's the reality. We added to the rebellion by listening to lies, rejecting God's truth, and then acting on those lies with sin. And in doing so, in doing so, this is what we did. We invited the same being who deceived us and his entire league of fallen angels to take up residence in this earth that God gave to us to manage for him. And they have come as an occupying army. 
So when God promises later in Genesis 3.15 that the seed or descendant of woman would crush the serpent, we shouldn't be surprised that all of the devil's evil is then aimed at derailing this promise and attacking that seed. That's exactly what we see him do after the birth of Jesus in Matthew 2, where Herod is inspired by Satan to attempt to murder the Christ child. And this is just one of many, many attacks by Satan on the rule of God, on the promised son of God, and on the people of God. Why? Because the agenda of God in promising the Christ is to dislodge and displace the devil's occupying powers and reverse the destruction they have brought to us and to creation. Indeed, from Abraham on, the work of God and the people of God has advanced this displacement of this occupying army. And when Christ came, this dislodging, This displacing meant that the spiritual war came to a head. Jesus was God's own liberator against the devil's occupying army. And so 1 John 3, 8 says plainly, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And what we find in the New Testament is that Jesus' coming does what no one and nothing else could. His coming drew Satan out from, from within the shadows. It's a curious thing. You almost hear nothing of Satan in the Old Testament. Almost, almost nothing. Jesus shows up. There are exorcisms to be, to be carried out everywhere all the time. He begins his ministry. Satan himself shows up in the wilderness to tempt Jesus, to try to uh, uh, convince Jesus to come over to his side, to do what he did. And when Jesus refuses, Satan doesn't give up. He presses on. He doesn't quit. He then works through certain Jews and Jewish leaders by stirring up hatred for Jesus, as we've seen in our passage in John chapter 8. Finally, John 13 says, the devil put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot to betray Jesus. Indeed, Jesus himself characterized his death on the cross as the ultimate attempt of Satan to end the fight for liberation and to end the restoration of God's rule. Everything we need, everything we ever needed, Satan works with all that he has and all that he is to keep it and to keep us from what we need. You know, I was thinking as we were singing a few minutes ago, And I really didn't quite expect this, to be honest, but as I was preparing this message, the more I came afresh to see the depth of the evil of Satan and his sheer hatred of all that is good, the more beautiful Jesus became to me. And I know a lot of you guys don't like, don't like the word beautiful. It sounds too feminine, but I, I, don't, know, I don't know how else to, to say it. I, I, I mean, 
So Satan did all that he could to defeat God's liberator. And the cross was the ultimate expression of that, right? <laughs> and God turned Jesus' defeat into D-Day. Three days later, there was this thing called the resurrection. And Satan's destiny was finally set. Ultimate defeat. And while the war is now won against him, the battle with him continues until Christ comes again. And that's the devil's story. His ambition, and this is what I want you to see, his ambition is to do as much damage to the cause of God, the cause of Christ as he can before D-Day becomes V-Day. Before Jesus comes again. And because he can't get at God directly, and because he failed to destroy God's liberating son, the devil and his army are focused on wreaking as much damage and havoc and destruction as they can on God's people and on God's creation before they lose their temporary control. And you and I, we must understand this. If you are a genuine follower of Jesus, the devil and his occupying force aim to strike at. They aim to do damage to the God they can't touch by striking at and harming you as his child. The only real way they can now get at God is through you. There's more that we need to know about this person. We've got to understand his true character. Notice how Jesus spells it out in verse 44 of John 8. He says, the devil was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and he is the father of lies. Now, now, folks, listen, 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 listen. This, this comic character uh, in a red suit with a pitchfork and a pointed tail and horns is one of Satan's best deceptions. He wants you to think of him like that. But I want you to hear me very carefully. He is not a comic figure. He isn't so easily seen or identified. Much of his danger to us comes right here. He isn't at all what we expect. In fact, he, when he isn't hiding in plain sight, he often disguises himself, Paul says, as an angel of light. The Bible describes the devil as a personal force who empowers and directs evil human beings and systems against God and those who are his people. This devil who once tempted Adam and Eve is later identified in the Bible using a number of different descriptions. I want you to hear them. He's called Satan, which means the enemy. 
Because he is the leader of lesser fallen angels or demons, evil spirits, Jesus called him the prince of the power of this world in John 12. Because of his incredible capacity for hatred, the devil is called in Revelation 9, Apollyon or the destroyer. This means he is the ultimate hater and the ultimate source of all hatred toward all that is good and right and true. As we've said, what motivates Satan in these demonic powers is hatred for God and everything related. His son, his people, his faithful angels, his creation. And because he's determined to foster confusion and chaos and destructive conflict, Satan is also identified in Revelation 12 as the accuser of the brothers and presents him as the one who brings charges against us to God. You can imagine him in this role. He says to God, he said, do you see what she's doing? She's one of yours? Are you seeing this? Are you seeing this? There he is again. There he goes again. You remember? He told you how sorry he actually was. He said he was repenting. It seems to me this is about the 33rd time this guy has repented. You're sure he's one of yours? He doesn't look like Jesus. He doesn't look like one of yours. But listen, that's not all that he does. He doesn't just accuse us before the Father. He's also very good at accusing the Father before us. Do you remember Genesis 3? He brings charges against God to us. And he says, hey, 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 listen, listen. You can't trust him. You can't trust him. He'll lie to you. I know his word says this, or his word says that, but it's not true. I saw a report just this past week that said now in the United States, over half of professing uh, Christians now say that sex outside of marriage is okay. Not a big deal. Not a big deal at all. Satan's all over that one. All over that one. Hey, God doesn't know what he's talking about. I saw a, uh, the result of some secular research a couple of years ago. A researcher in England was uh, trying to ascertain what impact, if any, there was on premarital sex and having multiple sex partners and all that kind of thing. And uh, do you know the conclusion she came to? She found as a part of her research that uh, whenever there's sexual intimacy, and this is a great subject for Mother's Day, yeah. Um, (laughs) Just occurred to me. Sex, the devil, you know, I can hear you going back now to your family 
and saying, well, where did you go? Went to church. Oh, it must have been a sweet Mother's Day. Did they hand out flowers? Yeah, the mother with the most teeth, the mother with the fewest teeth, mother with the most kids, fewest kids, um, mother who wishes she had no kids, uh, you know, all those things that, no, no, we, no, we didn't do that. We talked about sex and hell and the devil. You know, what kind of church did you go to? Well, I don't know. Um, we were wondering the same thing after he got into his message. Well, too bad you're here. You might as well finish it. You're already deep into it. The problem now is I can't remember where I was going with my sermon. <laughs> Research England. Yes. Oh, yes. That's right. Right. Okay, thank you. I, I talk to myself sometimes. It's helpful. Um, so anyway, she was doing this research, and, uh, and this is what she found. As a part of the research, that there, there comes to be a, an, an emotional but also a chemical kind of bond that's formed with every person who is a sex partner. And with repeated uh, acts of sex uh, with multiple partners, you're able less and less and less and less to actually connect. You, it's almost as if you become numb. So that you get to the point where you almost have no capacity for intimacy, for real connection. And when you finally get around, if you get around to getting married, uh, you really, really struggle with things like faithfulness, perseverance in a relationship. It's like a piece of tape that has been stuck on and taken off and stuck on and taken off and stuck on and taken off and stuck on and taken off. After a while, it just doesn't want to stick. See, that's what Satan is so good at. No real consequences. I mean, just be careful. He really is a liar, you know. You can't dodge God's truth or God's reality. I know he says you can't. You can't. I know you think you can. I know it'll be different with you. It won't. So in some, uh, this devil isn't someone you actually want living in your neighborhood. He's a superhuman being with great cunning and power in a cosmic war against the reign and rule of God. And so the devil is a very different kind of enemy from the world. The, the world comes at us with a, with a system, with images and ideas to attract us and gain our affections. This enemy comes at us personally and with an army of powerful, intelligent, hate-driven beings who come after believers with all that they have and they seldom, seldom, seldom retreat. They just don't quit. 
So what does all of this mean for you if, if you're a follower of Jesus? Well, first, it means this. It means that you've got to be absolutely sure about what you do think of this devil. I don't know. Perhaps you've lacked biblical instruction. Perhaps you've lacked faith in the God who overcomes. But regardless, you've got to take him very seriously. You, you can't afford to take either of the two extreme positions that professing believers often try to, to take, to dismiss or ignore the devil altogether or to fear the very thought of him and avoid any discussion of Satan or demons or the occult or evil or whatever out of a concern that if I start talking about them, they'll all start showing up. Neither are helpful. Both of them seem easier than facing the topic, I'll grant you. But here's the reality if you're a follower of Jesus. Your spiritual growth in Christ, your effective service in the kingdom of God are largely rendered impossible without confronting and facing the devil who works tirelessly to undermine both in your life and in the life of the church. The Bible makes it plain that if you're growing in Christ and serving him faithfully, you will always face satanic opposition. And yes, 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 I know that Satan is defeated. But what I want you to hear is he's still dangerous. Yes, yes, yes. I know, I know, I know, I know. The, the, the war has been decided. I, I get all that. But the battle is still being fought. And Satan's opposition to God and his work and his people remains as serious, as determined, as dangerous, as real, and as relentless as it has ever been. So the devil must always be expected, always be resisted, but never, never, never ignored. Loved ones, wherever you find hatred and death and a cheapening of life, wherever you find the twisting of God's truth, deception, and lies, you can be absolutely sure that the enemy you cannot see is at work. And you can be absolutely sure the more faithful you are to Christ, the greater will be the enemy's attacks. And I want you to remember, half-committed believers know little or nothing of Satan or of warfare. Why? Because he's already knocked them out of the fight. He's knocked them out of the fight with their compromises and their sin. They're no threat to him. They have few shots ever taken at them. But the faithful, the truly faithful, the active, can expect a lifetime of attack in battle. I've never known it. 
Never known it. Whenever in my personal life or in the life of a church of which I've been a part of, whenever we seek to do great things for God and the glory of Christ, to advance his kingdom, never seen it fail, the opposition comes. If you're a follower of Jesus and you're basically living your life the way you want to, you're not really heeding God's word in Christ, I expect you to say, I don't know what you're talking about, because you don't. He's not going to bother you. You're already back on his side, doing exactly what he wants you to do. You're not a big deal. Oh, yeah, he's going he's to bring some destruction into your life, and he's going to enjoy every minute of it. But you're not going to get a full frontal attack. It just ain't going to happen. It's the faithful. It's the growing. It's those who are passionate with love for Jesus, whose heart is to know him better and love him more, whose heart is to love the things he loves and hate the things he hates. Those are the people. Those are the people who find themselves up to here in the battle. Now here's the, here's the reality as we close. You can't fight him. You never beat him. He's stronger than you are. He's smarter than you are, more cunning than you are. See, now you've got to come back next week. <laughs> now you know why First John 4 is such a vital, critical, encouraging passage. John says, little children, I love this, don't forget that you are from God. Don't forget who your father is. There are two fathers one is out to harm you. One is out to heal you. You've got the father who's out to heal. And he cannot be defeated. Little children, don't forget that you are from God. And consequently, you have overcome. Why? For he who is in you is greater than he that is in the world. Don't forget who your father is. Let's pray together.
Father, to call you Father takes on so much more meaning for us now. Every honest person in this room, every self-aware believer in this room will acknowledge that our father used to be an abusive father who lied to us and deceived us. Yes, used and abused us, had nothing but destruction for us. And then Jesus came. By your grace, Lord God, you gave us eyes to see and hearts to understand that there was an option. There was a better father. You gave us a glimpse of yourself in your son. And you helped us to see that all did not have to be ultimately evil, but there was such a thing as true good. That harm could be countered with healing. That hatred did not have to be the ultimate and final motivator for life and living, but there was such a thing. Is a real and true love, unearned, undeserved, but nevertheless real. And you showed all of this to us in your son, in his cross, in his resurrection, in his teaching, in his promises. And in the beauty of his extraordinary character, oh, Father, how good it is to call you Father and to know that we are, if we are truly yours, truly safe in your hand. Grand Lord God, your hedge of protection about us. We pray as Jesus taught us to pray. Oh, Lord God, Father, lead us not into temptation and deliver us from the evil one. For Jesus' sake. Thanks for joining me today. If you enjoy these podcasts, take a moment to rate and review CG Life with Steve Kortz. My prayer is that God will continue to inspire and challenge you in Christ as week by week we apply the gospel faith to real life.